A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to A History of Europe. Key Battles, The Battle of Brunnenberg, Part 3 of 3. In the previous podcast, I told the story of the arrival of the Vikings to British shores and the response from King Alfred the Great of Wessex. Alfred not only saved Anglo-Saxon England from annihilation, he organised a very successful rebuilding of Wessex, setting it on the path to become the largest kingdom in Britain. The achievements of his grandson, Athelstan, are no less significant. Today I conclude this set of three podcasts on Anglo-Saxon England by discussing what was known half a century later, still, as the Great Battle, the Battle of Brunnenberg. By the end of the last podcast, King Alfred and his successor, Edward the Elder, had made Wessex the most powerful kingdom in Britain. At about the same time that the state of England was starting to form around Wessex and Mercia, the other parts of the future Great Britain were likewise taking shape. The last kingdoms of the native Britons, those of Cornwall, Cumbria, Strathclyde, as well as the Picts, were being squeezed out by their larger neighbours. Only mountainous Wales was able to preserve its independence, although its leaders were often compelled to recognise English claims of overlordship. In the centuries after the Romans, Wales experienced a gradual consolidation of power into increasingly larger kingdoms. By the late 9th century, most of the country was united under one king, Rodri the Great, but power fragmented once more when he died. As for Northern Britain, the historical records for this period are exceptionally sparse. The main local source from the period is the Chronicle of the Kings of Alba. Originally simply a list of kings with reign lengths, some other details were added into one manuscript version in the 10th and 12th centuries. Between the 6th and 9th centuries, there existed an important Gallic kingdom named Dalriata whose lands encompassed western Scotland and north-eastern Ulster in Ireland. According to the archaeological evidence, the formation of this kingdom came about not a result of migration or invasion from either side, but thanks to close sea links between the two islands. Bear in mind that in this period it was far quicker to travel by ship across water than across land. The earliest king of Dalriata, mentioned in the Chronicle of the Kings of Alba, is Kenneth MacAlpin. His reign in the 840s and 850s saw an increased degree of Norse settlement in the outlying areas of Scotland, including the Shetland, Orkney and Western Isles, as well as in Ireland. The links between Kenneth's kingdom and Ireland were weakened, while those with southern England and the continent almost broken. In the face of this, the union between the Picts, the native people of modern Scotland, and the Gaels, or Scotty, who were originally from Ireland, began to strengthen. 
Thus was born the so-called Kingdom of Alba, the embryo state of modern Scotland. As for Ireland, as described in the previous podcast, the Norse settlers had wrested control from the native tribal leaders in the early 800s. By the 900s, they had established independent kingdoms in Waterford, Wexford, Cork, Limerick and Dublin, the latter being the strongest and most ambitious. Having consolidated their power base in Ireland, they turned their attention towards Britain. They made incursions all along the west coast of Britain, including north-west England, north Wales, south-west Scotland and the Isle of Man but their main objective was to gain control of the northern Danelaw. In the year 918, a leader of the Irish Norse by the name of Ragnall attacked Scotland, and then Northumbria, and in the following year took the city of York. This kingdom, based on the two cities of Dublin and York, expanded fast. It was to last, with interruptions, for 35 years. In 920, Edward the Elder made some manner of agreement with Ragnar, as well as the other leaders of Northern Britain. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle states that they, quote, chose Edward as father and lord, end quote. The exact meaning of this is unclear. It was surely a temporary political understanding, not any kind of permanent submission to England. Either way, the agreement with York didn't last beyond the next year, when Ragnar died and his successor, Citric the One-Eyed, started making incursions into Mercian territory. Edward the Elder died in 924, while putting down a rebellion around Chester, which sparked a succession crisis among Edward's several sons from different wives. One of these sons, Edwin, was favoured by the West Saxons, but the Mercian camp pressed the claims of another, Athelstan, who had grown up with them. The Mercians won out, and Athelstan was elected in 924 at the age of 30. The year after, in 925, Athelstan decided to respond to the threat of Sutric by forming a marriage alliance with the Norsemen. Sutric married one of Athelstan's several sisters on the 30th of January, 925, and at the wedding converted to Christianity. However, peace in the north did not last long, as Citric died the next year. Athelstan, fearing Citric's successors were forming an alliance with the North British against him, marched to Northumbria. He expelled the Viking leaders and took control of York, but this was only the beginning. That summer, Athelstan rode up the Great North Road and attacked the city of Bamborough. He forced control over the Anglo-Saxon Earl, who had ruled the northern part of Northumbria, almost like an independent king. Never before had the rulers of southern England taken such firm control of Northumbria. Ambassadors were also sent to the kings of Cumbria and Strathclyde. Under threat of war, they too submitted, but in contrast to southern Britain, Athelstan's position in the north was far more tenuous. Next, Athelstan led his army to Wales, where resistance against the English domination was led by the King of Gwynedd. The campaign, although we know little about it, was clearly quite successful. Athelstan systematically broke Welsh resistance and ordered their kings to meet with him at Hereford. Here, a massive tribute was paid to the English king in the form of gold, silver, oxen, hawks and hounds.
From there, Athelstan continued to the far southwest of Britain, to the kingdom of Cornwall, where the local sub-king was resisting control. He expelled the leaders from their base at Exeter and ordered the rebuilding of that city. Perhaps he also resettled West Saxons there. Either way, Athelstan became remembered there not as a conquering warlord, but as a benefactor of churches. He visited Exeter several times in the next few years, richly endowing it with lands and holy relics. Having put down these rebellions, Athelstan tightened control of the administration of his kingdom throughout the early 930s. He made a number of land grants to a range of his supporters, bishops, Welsh sub-kings, English, Danish earls and others. Additionally, he introduced no law codes to try and bring more order and help strengthen royal control. In addition, he enforced a universal coinage system on which the king was represented as Rex Totius Britannae, or King of all the British. In the year 934, Athelstan invaded Scotland, for reasons which are not clearly stated in the sources, but was probably triggered by a territorial dispute. The King of Scotland was then Constantine II, grandson of Kenneth MacAlpin, who had defeated the Vikings in a major battle in 904 AD. Much like the contemporary Anglo-Saxon kings, Constantine brought in a system of earls to help organise the defence of the kingdom more efficiently, and in this way extended his kingdom's influence across Scotland, up to and including the city of Edinburgh, and up to the border with Northumbria. Athelstan's army forced Constantine into retreat, and besieged him at the rock fortress of Dunotar. Although the fortress was too strong for Athelstan to take, Constantine was forced into some form of recognition of Athelstan's claims of overlordship. However, as soon as the English king left, Constantine responded by forming a northern alliance against Athelstan. He did the previously unthinkable, and allied with the old pagan enemy, by marrying his daughter to Olaf Guthrithson, the king of Viking Dublin. Constantine also persuaded his relative and fellow king, Owain of Strathclyde, to support his cause. The northern kings of Britain, realising that alone they would not be able to break free from Athelstan, agreed to join up in one grand alliance against the English. Their aim was nothing less than to crush Athelstan with the combined manpower of the Celtic and Scandinavian peoples, and the result was the Battle of Brunanburh. The date of the battle is unknown, only that it took place sometime after the 23rd of September, 937, and its whereabouts is also a mystery. Tens of proposed locations have been put forward, from Cornwall to the Humber, Northumbria and Lincolnshire. The most favoured location by historians is currently the Wirral, by modern-day Liverpool. A major question of the debate is how the Vikings from Ireland would have safely reached the mainland. Either they sailed straight to the west coast of England, or they went to join forces on the east coast. If the latter is true, the ships may have been pushed across the narrowest portion of Britain, between the Firth of Clyde and the Firth of Forth, approximately where Glasgow and Edinburgh now lie. 
most likely is that the Allied forces joined up in Northumbria before moving south and ravaging the East Midlands. At this point, Athelstan is accused, in an old Latin poem preserved by William of Malmesbury, of unnecessary hesitation, for waiting while the invaders ravaged his land. This is probably unfair. It would have taken the king time to raise a large army from the different regions of his kingdom. Better to do so properly than rush headlong at half-strength. Mention of the battle is made in tens of sources, in Old English, Latin, Irish, Welsh, Icelandic and Middle English, but most are unreliable. The most important was written by William of Malmesbury in the 1100s. His Gesta Regum Angdorum, or Deeds of the Kings of the English, spans English history from the departure of the Romans to his own time. Another useful source is the, is the Icelandic saga Egil's saga, whose hero fights as a mercenary on the English side. One other is the chronicle of a monk from Lincolnshire named Ingolf, and in addition, a record of the battle is found in the old English poem entitled Battle of Brunanburh, which has been preserved in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. So, from the fragments of knowledge we have, what we can make out is that the battle went something as follows. Athelstan fought with his brother Edmund and a number of Viking mercenaries, including Egil and another named Turkutil. On the other side of battle were the combined armies of Olaf Guthfrisson, the Norse king of Dublin, Constantine II, king of Scots, Owen, king of Strathclyde, plus Viking settlers from the Orkney and Shetland Islands. The two forces met somewhere between a river and woodland. Athelstan pitched his tents on the slope of a hill to make it look as if he had had a great deal more men than he really did. King Olaf himself slipped into the camp, disguised himself as a harper to try and locate the tents of the English king. Olaf apparently even performed as a minstrel in Athelstan's court and was rewarded with gifts by the unsuspecting king. As he left the camp, the Norseman was spotted by one of Athelstan's men, perhaps a mercenary, who rushed to tell the king who he had seen. Because of this, Athelstan decided to move his tent, which was a wise decision. Since at night, a group of Vikings advanced stealthily on the camp and made a surprise attack where Athelstan's tent used to be. But Athelstan's Norse mercenaries fought back and the intruders fled. The rest of the night passed peacefully, and battle commenced the next morning. The rough formation of the armies was as follows. On one side of the battlefield, Athelstan's Norse mercenaries, together with West Saxons, were set against the Irish Norse forces of Olaf. On the other side, Mercians and Londoners, led by the mercenary Turkatil, confronted Constantine's forces, comprising the Scots, Picts, Orkneymen and Cumbrians. Athelstan could also rely on an independent unit led by the Viking mercenary Egil. Athelstan's mercenaries advanced quickly to give battle to the Irish contingents in Olaf's division, but as they attacked they were ambushed from the side by Vikings who burst from woodland. Luckily for them Egil's forces rushed to the rescue.
Meanwhile, Turcato advanced against the Scots and managed to unhorse the son of Constantine. The Scots fought back and put great pressure on the forces of Turcotel, but at a critical moment Constantine's son was struck dead and the Scottish division began to withdraw. This released Turcotel's men and Egor's unit to attack the rear of Olaf's division, which was already heavily engaged with the West Saxons of Athelstan. Now there was no way out for Olaf, and here was the greatest slaughter in the battle. What remained of Olaf's forces were routed. The victory was emphatically Athelstan's, and his foes well and truly beaten. According to the Anglo-Saxon chronicle, quote, Never before in this island was an army put to such great slaughter by the sword since the landing of the Angles and Saxons. End quote. As you can tell by the story of Olaf disguising himself as a harper, legendary tales composed later, which were based on the battle, make it difficult to be certain what is historical fact and what is fictional embellishments. For sure, contemporaries viewed the battle as the great event of the era. According to the chronicler Athelweird, writing in the 980s, it was still known then by common folk as the Great Battle. He adds, quote, The barbarians were overcome on all sides, and held the superiority no more. The fields of Britain were consolidated into one, and there was peace everywhere, an abundance of great things. End quote. Though clearly an exaggeration, it indicates the great importance of the Battle of Brunnenburg. The Anglo-Saxon victory confirmed England as a strong, unified kingdom, although it was not resounding enough to crush the enemy, only pushed them back to their former borders. Constantine II, despite the defeat, was Scotland's most successful king of the early Middle Ages. He succeeded with a combination of strength in battle and skilful diplomacy in preventing the Anglo-Saxons from achieving their ultimate goal of taking control of all of Britain. The story of this North-South conflict would repeat itself many times throughout the next millennium. The Anglo-Saxon kingdom remained afterwards vulnerable to Norse invaders and the next century saw many ups and downs in the fortunes of Athelstan's successors. But England was now, without doubt, more than just an idea. It was a successful and well-organised kingdom, the largest in the British Isles, a kingdom that would include the north of today's England, as well as central and southern England, all the way down to Cornwall. Its creation was not inevitable, but achieved through a mixture of military success, tactful diplomacy, and good luck. Successful Scottish and Welsh kingdoms would likewise develop in the two centuries from about 850 to 1066, and so the rough outline of today's cultural borders became defined. To remind ourselves of the unpredictable consequences of historical events, it is useful sometimes to try and think from the point of view of kingdoms and peoples who would, in the end, lose in this case from that of the final territories of mainland Britain, held by native Britain, that is Cumbria and Strathclyde. They were overcome by their more powerful neighbours from all sides. England was to become such a successful and unified entity that it became an enviable target for possession. 
When the Normans conquered England, they were able to take the kingdom in one stroke, by replacing the top level of Anglo-Saxon leadership. The Normans also benefited from inheriting an effective administrative and legal system that the Anglo-Saxons had worked hard on establishing. I will go into the Norman invasion of Britain in more detail in two podcast time when I cover the Battle of Hastings of 1066. But next time I would like to take a look back at mainland Europe. The Franks and Saxon peoples were also having to deal with Viking raids. But on top of that, they had to confront relentless attacks from invaders from the Asian steppes. These invaders were the Magyars, also known as the Hungarians. Please join me next time for the decisive battle for Central Europe, the Battle of Lechfield, 955, fought between the Germans and Hungarians. I would like to thank all my listeners who have put words of encouragement on my website, www.historyeurope.net. I am very interested to hear as many comments as possible, both knowing what you most enjoy about the podcast and any suggestions. Also, thank you to those who have reviewed A History of Europe, Key Battles, on iTunes. Each extra review is a great help in promoting the podcast so I encourage others to go to iTunes and add a review. Till next time, and our next battle. Thank you for listening.